So if you were to ask, what is AI going to do? It's actually catering to your needs specifically. It's like creating Jarvis. It's like the ultimate digital assistant for an advisor, an advisor assistant, so they can be much more efficient when they do their job. It's basically going back to the conversation we have. We know who you are, we know what you want, and we know how to get you there. That was Raj Madan, who is head of the Pershing Advisor Technology Lab, where he and Michelle Feinstein are leading the charge to improve the experiences of both Pershing clients and advisors by leveraging artificial intelligence-based solutions. While they probably won't have a personal assistant as powerful as Tony Stark's Jarvis anytime soon, we did talk about some of the cutting-edge products that are being tested. These include natural language processing, multi-channel chatbots, AI-powered dashboards, and a whole lot more, which we discussed on this episode of the Wealth Management Today podcast. And what a fantastic day it is today in the wonderful world of wealth tech. And you are listening to episode 65 of the Wealth Management Today podcast. I'm your host, Craig Eskowitz, and I run a consulting firm called Ezra Group. We're experts in everything related to wealth tech. We deliver growth-oriented solutions to banks, broker dealers, asset managers, RIA consolidators, as well as their wealth tech providers and vendors through our premium advice and targeted market research. On this podcast, I speak with some of the smartest people in the industry who are on the leading edge of technology and innovation. And please remember to subscribe and leave us a five-star review on iTunes and share this episode on your social media networks. Thanks very much. And on to this episode. And I'm happy to introduce on this episode of the Wealth Management Today podcast, my guests. We have two guests today. Both from Pershing, uh, we have Raj Madan, Managing Director of Technology. Uh, hello, Raj. Hello, Craig. How are you? Fantastic. And we have Michelle Feinstein, Director of Technology, Client Engagement. Hey, Michelle. Hey, Craig. Thanks for having me. All right. This is going to be good. Uh, I love uh, this is a technology podcast. So we're always looking to do deep dives into technology. And Pershing has got a lot of great tech, and um, we managed to convince uh, Raj and Michelle to come on and, and talk to us a bit. Uh, and what we're going to focus on for this episode is the Pershing Advanced Technology Lab, something a lot of people may not know about. And uh, I want to let them introduce themselves uh, first. So if you guys can each do like a 30-second intro of yourself, and then we'll talk about what the technology lab is. So uh, Michelle, why don't you go first? Sure. So I, um, Michelle Feinstein, I'm Director of Technology Client Engagement here at Pershing, and I run a team that really focuses on working with advisors and um, our firms on helping them take advantage of all the Pershing technology that's out there to the best of their, you know, capabilities so they can gain efficiency and have better interactions with clients. So it's really important that we pay attention to how can advanced technologies play a part in that. And that's why today we're going to be talking to you about some of the things that we're telling our clients are coming soon to help them with, you know, money movement transactions, you know, reporting and analytics, and just different ways that, you know, they can help have conversations with their clients in a digital way. Terrific. Raj, give us a 30-second overview of yourself and how you came to Pershing. Sure, thank you. And uh, again, my name is Raj Badan. I'm Managing Director of uh, BY Mellon Pershing Technology. I manage a division that has several teams. The division is called Common Services Architecture and Innovation. 
Uh, one of the hats I wear is I actually uh, manage what's called the Advanced Technology Labs. Uh, some of the POCs came for the lab. And um, I've been in Pershing for about seven years and BMY Mellon for quite some time, 20 years. Can you guys tell us about the Advanced Technology Lab? What is it and how it was formed? All right, so Craig, I mean, there's multiple forms of innovation within Pershing technology, right? Within Pershing in general. Uh, a lot of innovation actually occurs within our typical product roadmap. So when you think about our product roadmap, it has a time horizon of let's say one to three years. And that roadmap is affected by client feedback. It's affected by, let's say, competition and industry. And that has innovation in itself. The Advanced Technology Labs was actually introduced around seven years ago, where we sort of go outside of the box of our typical product roadmap and try to think in an untethered way when we execute our proof of concepts. So the goal of the Advanced Technology Labs is actually to look at technology trends see which of those trends that are most pertinent and most relevant to our products. And for those that have the highest correlation, we execute proof of concepts on them. Now, this is an innovation lab. So when we execute these proof of concepts, not all of them do go to production. So the things we're talking about today, they won't necessarily all hit production. And some of them are at different stages of their incubation life cycle. But whenever you think about innovation, people always consider about the fact is, okay, you have to have the ability to fail. I know that's a tough word, no one likes to say it, but in the case of Advanced Technology Labs, that is possible. That said, since we're sort of at the end of our filtration process of all ideas, we do have a high success rate for the Advanced Technology Labs. But some of the items we talked today will come from the Advanced Technology Labs. Mm-hmm. Terrific. Sure so, uh, <laughs> one of the things I, would, uh, I write a lot about on my blog, and I think is the most one of the most interesting technologies that's really going to change wealth management and gen- wealth management advisor technology in general is uh, artificial intelligence. And I know the Advanced Technology Lab, but Pershing has, has got a number of AI-based initiatives uh, and proof of concepts, which we're going to talk about. Uh, so the first one we're going to talk about is enhanced search with machine learning. Michelle, can you give us a quick overview of what that is? Yeah. So in the NetX360 platform, which is what our advisors are living in day in and day out, they have a capability today called search. And they can put in a client name, you know, look for information, look for a particular transaction to trade. And the idea behind enhanced search is how can we bring more information to the advisor all at once, even information they weren't thinking about, to have better client conversations. So one of the ways we're doing that is we're leveraging a machine learning algorithm to associate reports, operational alerts, product information, um, items for attention that could be associated to an account or a client and present that to the advisor in what we call a spotlight panel. And that spotlight panel will give them their initial search results, but the machine learning is prioritizing this information and serving up all these other things at once. The reason that that's powerful is it helps the advisor not have to hunt and search through the platform for the reports, for alerts, or have to think of these things on their own, we're serving it up to them and meeting them where they are in the platform at any time. So we're pretty excited about it. And our plan in first phase is to focus on operational alerts and tell them, hey, is there an incoming or outgoing transfer with their um, assets that are leaving the account? Or are there behavioral changes happening with these accounts or account where maybe the advisor, the investor rather, is doing something they haven't done before. Maybe they're doing more trades, maybe they're withdrawing more funds, et cetera. How does that work? How does it know when, I mean, I guess I'm assuming it's some sort of pattern matching, behavioral matching and looking through big, you know, that's related to big data. So how are you doing that? And, and how, is, how is your, like your big data uh, setup run that, that enables this to be delivered? 
Yeah, so um, the search facility that we actually currently even have within Pershing, it does use a big data solution. Um, it's called Elasticsearch, if anybody's interested in the technical aspects mm -hmm. of that. Um, and that does enable this capability of indexing very quickly and responding as per what Michelle was saying. It also allows us via the indexing capability of creating facets uh, like that spotlight feature that she was talking to. So it enables to get to that information quite quickly. On the AI aspect, which is sort of like the day two here, where we're thinking of doing is actually using a feedback loop, if you will, on the information that people are clicking into and then producing algorithms that it says, okay, what are the preferred elements that people are sort of gravitating towards? And since those are preferred uh, within the algorithm, uh, basically put them at a higher priority. So when we do show the following results, they see that higher priority result. It's a similar way uh, a Google search would work. It knows what you're searching. Very, very similar to that, yeah. Right? So mm -hmm. it sees what you're searching on and tries to think ahead and give you the things that you're most likely to to talk about. Does it also do similar to Google where Google um, knows where you are in the country and knows that people in your region are searching for certain things or knows what you maybe you know, have bought uh, or other things you search for and kind of cross-references them that way? It can. Um, again, this is one of those things that we probably should have uh, started with like, you know, these are sort of things within the advanced technology lab. So some of these items are in proof of concept phase. This one in particular is making progress. So it looks like it's highly to happen, but we should point out that like some of these items don't necessarily make it to production all the time. because That is the whole innovation life cycle we're in. Mm. Um, but in the case of like sort of understanding the persona of the user and making that part into the search criteria and seeing like, okay, possibly, you know, what client firm are they part of and making that a part of the old search algorithm can occur. And it does occur currently within the whole indexing process. It's interesting you mentioned that. I, I, I do a presentation uh, for conferences where I'm speaking and one of them is on a website called the Google Graveyard, if you've ever heard of that. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, all mm -hmm. the products that Google's killed. And I think it's up to yeah. 170, 180 products. I haven't checked in a couple of months. That's just the ones they killed, not the ones that they are successful, right? So, uh, and what I mentioned was that we don't have enough of that in wealth management, that people are too afraid to try new things for fear of it failing. And failure, yeah. failure isn't necessarily a bad thing if, you, if you're trying something that's out of the box and you didn't know if it would work you might learn a lot from it, but we don't really have enough of that. So I'm, I'm happy to hear you guys are doing that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and if you fail fast and you fail cheap, at the end of the day, you've learned a lot and you're extensively adding to your intellectual capital of understanding the next challenge. Exactly. All right, so the next use case we want to talk about, we just hit enhanced search. Uh, can we talk about natural language generation? And that's over to Raj. What is that? Can you give us a quick overview? People don't know what natural language generation is or natural language processing and how, what's the use case for it inside the lab? Okay, so at its simplest state, uh, ultimately NLG, natural language generation, is part of the artificial intelligence realm. And ultimately it's the process of taking, of taking data and converting it to plain text, plain English, if you will. Now in the use case that we're using this for, what we're looking at is the advisor, let's say, creating a performance report, which they can do within Pershing technology under Allbridge, where they use wealth reporting and insights to produce an aggregated view of the client's portfolio and the overall performance. Now, within wealth reporting and insights, there is this thing called a report creator. Incidentally, they're actually redoing the report creator, where they're allowing um, the user to sort of break the report down into components and basically creating their own customized experience for that particular report. And these components 
or like sort of these autonomous, flexible standard components that actually create a rich uh, sort of experience for the ultimate report. Now, this is where NLG comes in. If you think about, let's say, the client's investment experience, not all clients can easily, let's say, take a particular graph or report and, and convert it down to sort of correctly focused data points, right? It all depends on their overall experience. So what we're looking to do here is make their lives easier by taking that graph and those tables, if you will, and actually create a snippet of text that's related to the graph. And is that snippet of text, which would be part of that component, would basically point out the salient points from within the graph or the tables that they've chosen to show in that performance report. So very interesting stuff. That's cool. Uh, and why did you pick that? What, why was that more important than other things? Was there a certain customer uh, request for it or were there certain efficiencies you saw that would benefit clients more than others? So this is one of those things where it's like you start looking at the market and you start looking at what competitors are doing. What we mm -hmm. noticed is that there are a lot of spaces where people are, let's say, looking at market data and producing this text. And we actually did it in another case where when someone started to produce, let's say an order, we would actually show the text equivalent to their order. So we saw this natural progression occurring where it's like people want to see more and more information on the whole NLG space and this maturity in the space. And I, by the way, futuristically, I can also see, and this is again, by the way, NLG is again, very early in the life cycle, uh, incubation cycle of the advanced technology lab. So it is one of the things that we're still working with, right? What we can also do with this content, since we've created this snippet of text that's very relevant to the, the actual graph, is we can actually use it in the future for let's say smart home speakers. So a smart home speaker is like Alexa, you know, Google Home and so forth. Since we have this text now and it's actually configured, we can theoretically in the, in the, in the future look at providing that to the investor as well. Sure, that's where an investor might say, I want to, I want to buy some Apple stock or I want to, or I need $10,000 because I'm going on vacation or something. Right, right. And I mean, and the other thing, by the way, we're also thinking of doing even to add on to that is in the ADA space, the American Disability Act. Mm -hmm. So now you have like text that's specific to a particular component, right? And if I can, and again, this is all exploratory, so it's very fresh, very new if I can have the computer orally speak that text to you in whatever fashion, in electronic performance report, then it, it, it actually is meeting the needs for someone who has, let's say, you know, visual impairment. So there are a variety of things that can come out of this whole strategy. I could say, uh, Alexa, uh, what's my portfolio performance this month? That's exactly, that's exactly right. That's right. And you would, would say, Alexa, you know, ask, yeah, you get the idea. <laughs> And hopefully people aren't listening to this podcast on, on a speaker and they're, they're, <laughs> That's right. and they're then their devices are now starting up. So I apologize for anyone who's, who, who that happened to. <laughs> I want to take a break from this episode to talk about one of our sponsors. The Invest in Others Charitable Foundation recognizes individual advisors and advisory firms that are making a difference by donating their time and money to causes they care about. By sharing their stories and awarding funding to these organizations, the Invest in Others Charitable Foundation builds critical visibility, encourages others to get involved, channels additional resources to those in need, and highlights the important work being championed by the financial services community. Over the past 12 years, thanks to the ongoing support of both corporate sponsors and individual donors, 
Uh, the Invest in Others Charitable Foundation has helped to shine a light on the financial industry's good works, bringing greater recognition to a wider range of professionals from wirehouses and independent broker-dealers to RIAs, while partnering with charities across a spectrum of causes. I'm uh, part of the Invest in Others Foundation uh, group of volunteers, and I've been uh, fortunate enough to be on some of their judging committees to help allocate funds to some of these charities, and it is tough. Here, there are some amazing charities, and trying to decide between three or four uh, incredible causes is difficult. It would be easier if we had more money. So if you can donate and get your company to match your donation, that would help uh, everyone at the foundation be able to distribute more charitable funds to uh, charities all around the world to help uh, these good deeds continue to get done. So please go to investinothers.org, uh, investinothers.org today and make a donation. We would all appreciate it. Thanks. Uh, so let's move on to the next use case, which I think is really, which I really am interested in. It's uh, chatbots uh, and, and how they impact the service experience. And I saw the, the proof of concept chatbot uh, at the, the Pershing Insight Conference last year, uh, back when we used to be able to go to conferences. And I thought it was very cool. Because the, the technology, the, the, the platforms, and Pershing's been around a while, and NetX360's been around a while, and any system that's got as many customers as you guys have tends to grow in complexity, and it becomes harder and harder to find stuff. And if I can just say, hey, I need the form, a client lost their credit card, the debit card, give me the right form, and it just pops up the form right away, that's a huge time saver in operations. So can you talk a little about how the chatbot works and why you did it and what's going to be the benefit to clients besides the one I mentioned? Yep, so I'll, I'll take this one. So you're exactly right. Uh, the platform has a lot of information. And today, advisors, you know, usually when they're looking for a status and they're going to our service center dashboard, that's where they begin. And it would be more of an, e an email exchange. So with the chatbots, what's exciting is now they can have an interaction. They're not searching through a dashboard and they can say, how do I do something or just do a simple service inquiry and the bot's going to give them an instant response, right? An example would be, hey, what's the status of this ACAT transfer? Or what's the wire number associated to this wire transfer? My my bank didn't receive it. So right now we're in the early stages with the chatbot, training them on multiple use cases. We have about 25 to 30 use cases documented, starting out with simple inquiries, but they're going to get more and more complex as we keep training the bot. Um, the other is just getting a little bit smarter with also routing calls to the right service agents and giving advisors the ability to set up callbacks right through NetX360. So if they are using our service center pass, they don't want to wait. They want to make sure it gets to Michelle, the expert in a particular area. They can go and see the estimated wait time and schedule the callback right through the platform, knowing when that's going to occur. So we're excited about that as well. Um, so great stuff happening in service. I mean, our goal is how can we offer a multi-channel experience all advisors are different. Some want the dashboard, some want you know, to talk to a representative and they want to get the right one the first time and others, they're going to just love the bot. So great stuff happening there. And Raj, maybe you want to talk a little bit about the technology we're using for the chat bot just to get a little techie for a second. Yeah. So, I mean, the basic part of let's say routing and so forth, I mean, I, I wouldn't, I would, that's, that's stuff we're going to do via the CRM, if you will, right? So the CRM we have uh, is a vendor product of which is so one of those things that's in flux right now because we're changing our CRM. But uh, when you actually want to sort of, uh, when the user, let's say, say click the talk, um, it does sort of do that routing within the CRM process because it looks at which users make the request. And then it looks at the queue of the request and says, okay, who is the appropriate person to send that information to? So that's a, a lot of that sort of peer-to-peer -peer, uh, communication that's gonna happen in the, uh, in the future. 
The advanced stuff, which is again still like going in the proof of concept phase, is what Michelle was talking about where we are doing what you kind of said before is conversational interface, right? You have this thing, you know, you think about Pershing. Pershing is a very robust system. We, we do from A to Z of many things, right? So how do you navigate through the Pershing portal? Well, we, we arrange everything as well as we can. But at the end of the day, if I want a user, and one thing I can, we can all agree with it is a user can speak English. <laughs> if they can type in a question that they're looking for and the chatbot can help them navigate through those questions, uh, that is really the, the ultimate goal of these chatbots and, and sort of the end game. Now, how does that happen technology-wise? Well, think about this, right? Someone comes up to you on the street, and they're going to ask you a question. What's the first thing you're going to think about? They're going to say, on the question. what do you want? Yeah, yeah well, exactly. What, what do you want? And who well, are you? Uh, Why are you thing. asking me questions? Yeah, Why me? <laughs> that's right. Um, believe it or not, that's actually the way this stuff works. The, the first step in a chatbot conversation is to understand the intent of the user. What's your objective? What is it you want to do? Once I figure out your intent, then I can go into this sort of, for lack of a better term, a dialogue workflow going back and forth between you and me, just like we're doing now, by the way. You know, if you think about it, we have a protocol in which we're asking and answering questions. It's a very similar concept. So now the computer is like, I got you. I know what you want to do. Let me take you through my typical dialogue workflow that allows you to get to the information you're looking for. That's what I would boil down all this technology to. And, and we aren't necessarily using a vendor to this. We are using an open source package to do that. So it will be proprietary stuff um, going forward. Can you talk about what the open source package you're using? Yeah, so the current package we're looking at is called Raza, R-A-S-A. Um, and it is one of those things that speaks to um, intent and, and dialogue workflow and looking at the objective of what you want to do and try to accomplish that. That's the current. Again, this is still proof of concept, so I want to repeat that. But, and if we can just talk a little bit deeper, intent in a chatbot is a little bit different than a human intent. Yes, I mean, if you think about it, in it if when you're talking about a ch to a chatbot, you could be asking a few things. One is, can you get me the following piece of information? So that's like a, a get me use case, get me the following. So in that case, what we're doing with the sort of the overall flow is, okay, this guy wants information. So to me, what that will become is the chatbot will interface with our APIs to acquire the information that they're looking for and present it in some logical format. The other one, the other intent is like, hey, I need to do something, you know? So get me, and again, Pershing is a robust system and we have a lot of technology. Get me to this, this form, if you will, that'll help me fill out the form. So then the chatbot has to figure out, okay, so you want to know how to get to somewhere. What I'm going to do is I'm going to answer that question by bringing you to the appropriate location within our, our portal so you can fill in the appropriate form. That's the concept. Right, because right, it's different, the, in, the, in, and I'm not a chatbot expert, but the difference, there's the, 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 there's the workflow or the flow-based chatbots, which are the ones you get frustrated with today on mm -hmm. online, where it, you ask it a, a, anything more than, the couple basic questions and it, it gets confused and says, Oh, I'll get you an agent. Like you can't do anything right. because it only yeah. follows a certain set conversational path. So what's the benefit of the, how much better is the intent based chatbots? Well, it's the, the difference is in, in the scenarios that you were, first of all, by the way, there's always the case where if a person is getting frustrated and we can hopefully again, going forward, understand their sentiment, 
Like, are they getting annoyed? We can actually shift over to any human. So that is, that's an important aspect that uh, is done in a ubiquitous fashion these days, right? Um, but like in this case, the difference is that we are trying to understand what it is you're trying to do and then orient you into the right location. So we have a hopefully, hopefully a better hit ratio of, you know, understanding your objective um, and getting you there. Will your chatbots just be a chat or will there be a, like, a, I've seen some artificial intelligence uh, faces mm-hmm. where it's not a real person, but it's an, an AI face where you're, you're so you get, you get the eye, you sort of get eye contact. It's not really yeah, eye contact, yeah. but it, it tends, people tend to interact differently when they're talking to a face, even if they know it's a computer yeah. than just texting. Is that something you're also looking at? At this point, we're not. Two years ago, we did something in the advanced technology labs, which again, like I said before, sometimes in the ATL, we really, you know, shoot really far in the time horizon, where we actually did so, uh, facial recognition and facial sentiment recognition. Right, right. We were actually looking at to see like, okay, is this person annoyed today or not? Like, you know, what's mm-hmm. happening on their face? But that was, again, very exploratory, and that's very far in the future of the of the horizon. Because I know there's, um, I, I've written about this in my blog, there's a, a broker dealer I know using some technology for facial recognition for um, onboarding and risk tolerance where it, they, it, it has the user watch uh, little vignettes about different life experiences yes. and measures their facial yes. re- responses. They don't actually type anything, <clears throat> just watch little like 15 yes. second vignettes and then it responds. Is that something you guys would be interested in? Not that I'm selling it, I'm just curious if you're looking at that or not. Yeah, we're definitely not doing that right now. But like I said, two or three years ago, we did uh, look at software that did that sort of thing where it actually looked at the face and actually tried to figure out if a person was unhappy or, or you know, was aggregate, aggravated, if you will. Um, and what we did actually in the, in the proof of concept is we actually asked the people to create different sort of experiences on their face and see how, how successful the, uh, the, the bot was in figuring out what their emotion was. It was, it was funny. I think that's the future. Like I can tell you're really happy now, Raj. So I'm going to ask you some more questions. Uh, Okay. So, uh, so another use case we we were discussing was uh, leveraging AI for operations. And that's a huge issue. I know my firm, we work with a lot of broker dealers. We help them optimize, improve their operational processes, uh, depending on, or or their RIA aggregators, consolidators, and they've all very different ways of approaching operations. So, what are some of the things you guys as a custodian, one of the biggest custodians, both on broker dealer side and the RIA side, what are some things you're, you're seeing that where AI can help and how are you leveraging AI in, in operations? All right. So this one is interesting because in many ways it has benefiting two use cases and two personas. One is the sort of the request that uh, Michelle was speaking about. Like someone submitted a request. She kind of spoke about something that's going to be part of this whole thing. The other is the persona of the operations manager who's dealing with the queue of these requests and the work list of items. Now, going back to the first persona, right? You have a user, he submits a request. Let's say it's a Fedwire. It doesn't make a difference. It could be any sort of request. Now, in the past, a person is given this, uh, depending on which request it is, they're given this text to say, well, you know, we're going to take, let's say, the following number of days to complete this request. And it's very standardized sort of response to a user's request. Sometimes, by the way, that doesn't happen. But depending on the situation and the scenario, some users can be a little bit anxious about the request, right? They could be very interested in like making sure, let's say, that Fedwire gets completed in a particular time so that they can execute their investment, whatever it may be. So uh, what we're looking at here now is introducing something, introducing something called estimate completion time, as Michelle mentioned it before. And the thought here is when that person does submit a request, they get something that specifically says, when do we think your request will be completed? 
And the way this is being done, and the reason why this is related to the AI ops space, by the way, because there's a reason, there's like two sides to this whole, this whole formula, if you will, is we are looking at the past experience, past performance, and past use cases of the requests that are specific to that user and the overall request that he has had. And our, depending on our digestion of that data, we can give that user better information about when that request will get completed. Very similar to like, let's say Amazon tells you like, hey, your package is gonna arrive two days, but in this case, we're gonna get much more precise because it's very focused on that user and their particular request. Now, the other side of this transaction is the operation manager. So now remember again, what is the operation manager interested in? He's interested in looking at his queue of work list items and making sure they're gonna get done before the end of day, make sure he hits his targets, right? So um, one of the things that they currently have is they don't necessarily have that transparency of like understanding their cues, what's, what's going on and how are they gonna beat that? So the goal of the AI ops, artificial intelligence for operations, is to actually create a dashboard of historical trends, you know, provide a current workload and also predictive data for that uh, user to see, the operational manager. Along with that, you know, since we have that information, we can actually have like a digital assistant provide information to the operational manager regarding, let's say, an alert if he's if the digital assistant sees something wrong that the operational manager will be interested in. So, for example, if the uh, the digital assistant says, "Hey, there's a 55% chance you're gonna not gonna hit you're not gonna hit your targets today before the Fed closes," that's a very important thing for uh, that user to know. Hey, so also explain how this digital assistant might recommend they split work in order to go ahead and meet their service levels and process that, that workload. That's right, that's right. So one of the thoughts here, and again, this is uh, one of those items that's in proof of concept, so it's very early in this stage, is if, if the uh, system, and it will have, let's say, data regarding the particular users, it can actually predict sort of like, okay, this user was very good at providing uh, response times very quickly for this particular use case. So they can do some sort of what if analysis to say to the operational manager, if you engage worker A into the queue, this will be the performance that you're gonna expect. So it's like sort of providing it like, you know, futuristic forecasts for the different users that can be part of that overall queue. So I'm always of, a, of, of two minds with this type of thing, where one is I think it's super cool to be able to say, well, hey, we've monitored this person's work and they're very efficient at this type of task. Let's give them that type mm -hmm. of task that they'll improve our yeah. operational efficiency. And this person's very good at this type of task, but then that means you have to monitor every single thing a person does, like every keystroke, every action. So it's sort of a very big brother-ish. So how do you balance mm -hmm. the, the creepy privacy issues versus we just want to be operationally efficient yeah. part of the business? Yeah, I mean, this is this is all the sort of the user activity within the portal, and it's it's all like things that uh, sort of currently have. When you let's say um, click through different screens and so forth, uh, there is something called end user monitoring to see like sort of your overall usage and how you're sort of leveraging the platform. Um, so that is part of the overall product set as we do now, and we use that in many ways, both for let's say product development and even on the development side, we use it to debug. Like if someone says, "Hey, my performance seems a little slow today," we actually look at that end user monitoring information to provide that better user experience for that that entity. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, I agree, uh, and those all those things make sense. But my question is, how do we balance the we need to be more operationally efficient against the yeah. why are you check why are you watching everything I do 
Uh, you know, so where do you, where's the balance there? Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's an interesting question. We, we, we kind of run through that in a lot of AI space, right, Craig? I mean, this is mm -hmm. like, a, uh, people often ask like, okay, now I'm, let's say a user in your platform, I'm working for a client firm. That client firm is really that entity that owns all your data. Another person could say, well, let's say I'm an investor, you know, can I use uh, the investor's data? And the answer is no, you cannot use the investor's data. That's against all the regulations that are out there and the regulations are continuing to enhance. But the question also becomes, let's say you take, you know, the railroad or the train. You ever been in the train before and someone walks by with a little clicker? You ever see that? And they're basically counting the number of people <laughs> in that train. What they're trying to do <clears throat> is they're trying to figure out what the, uh, the numbers are within the train so they can improve the overall schedule. Is that inappropriate? That's the question that we would kind of question. It's like, oh, you've just been, you've just been observed. You know, you've been clicked. Now the question is, okay, so if no one really thinks about that, the fact that you've been clicked and anonymized by the click, is it the same to say that, let's say an investor logs in, we anonymize them, we don't know who the investor is, but they logged in at a particular time, is that inappropriate to observe that uh, click? Well, nothing's necessarily inappropriate on its own. Any, any yeah. one piece of data is not inappropriate. It's all the data put together yeah. that it becomes inappropriate. I mean, my favorite story right, is right. Uh, the story about Target. This is already a 10-year-old story where they wanted mm -hmm. to get a jump on. Um, they found that women who, when they become pregnant, they start to buy lots of stuff. And they, they will, that's when they're more likely to change stores. Uh, but yeah. once they find yeah. a store, they won't change. And they realized through their tremendous amount of data that, when women buy, you know, multivitamins, you know, rugs and, you know, talc or not, you know, non-scented talc and those certain types of things that, were, that don't seem related, women who buy those are most likely pregnant. And they were so mm -hmm. accurate. They were sending out coupons to women who bought those and they, they got made people upset. Like, how do you know I'm pregnant? You're sending me coupons for diapers. I haven't told anyone yet. And that's, and those, yeah. that's a true story. It's in the, it was in the journal. Yes, so yes. Yes. the thing is you can have lots of data and any one data point may seem completely innocuous. It's when you put it all together that mm -hmm. it could hit privacy issues. And, and I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. I'm saying, mm -hmm. how do we balance it? How do we get the message to consumers and investors and advisors that here's what we're doing, here's the benefits, here's how we're going to avoid any of the negative, the downside. Is that something you guys are thinking about? Yeah, so I think that in, in the different spaces of this whole thing, there's like sort of providing the better user experience that occurs and then, you know, having information about, let's say, like I say, the investors. I do believe there's two different personas here that really need to be considered, right? So one thing we did a few years ago on the professional side, and again, these are, you know, people that are using the professional platform, not the retail platform, is we did this thing called a clustering algorithm where we looked at their overall usage of the system and we tried to figure out what persona they were without telling us. It's sort of like how Netflix figures out the fact that I, I'm a sci-fi geek because I watch sci-fi all the time, right? So we actually did that whole process. And then when we talked about it, we actually said, okay, well, so is this, you know, sort of inappropriate to say like, okay, I'm clustering this person into this persona. Uh, that, that particular use case didn't move forward um, because, you know, product didn't necessarily see the value of like clustering. But we don't ever do something like that on the investor side because again, they are not a professional and their data specifically is theirs in that space and try to understand who they are. Um, so it, it is it's like sort of a fine line. I mean, if you look at, let's say, GDPR, the regulation that came out, that's, well, there's a reason why whenever you go to these websites, Craig, you see this little cookie thing that says, hey, we're tracking your information. Can you click OK in order to continue? 
uh, that whole thing came from these different regulations on saying, are you okay with uh, someone tracking your sort of usage at the end of the day? So it is a debatable uh, item, I would say. Yeah, and every use case that we do, by the way, has to get vetted by the teams that manage and pay attention to the privacy law and legal and compliance and all that. And sometimes some of our ideas do get halted based upon their opinions and direction. Mm -hmm. Indeed. All right, so we're, we're out of time. Uh, this was a great conversation. I want to do a quick last uh, round of questions. So so for one, one question for each of you. So Michelle, uh, in 30 seconds, what do you see the biggest impact of AI uh, in your area, in the client engagement area over the next five years? I think it's going to be advisors being willing to try it and trust it and not fear it. Um, we're seeing a big shift and change amongst the advisor community and using all kinds of technology and they're seeing the benefits fast. So I think here it's just making sure that they understand and learn how it's going to benefit their business and their interaction with their clients. And Raj, uh, from your, your point of view, the technology point of view, well, the next five years in terms of custodian technology, you know, the AI lab, uh, the advanced tech lab being part of your purvey, what do you see as the one mm -hmm. biggest area that, that AI can impact? The biggest area? Okay, so there are definitely the biggest uh, impact. a lot of areas. That, the biggest, yes, impact. Yes, biggest impact. Yeah, 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 sure, sure. Um, you know, there, there's so much that could be done here. Um, understanding the user and sort of what it is that they want to do, like even in the chatbot example, is a very important aspect of this because it's really trying to like sort of understand that specific individual and sort of catering to their needs. So if you were to ask like in the big world space here, what is AI going to do? It's actually catering to your needs specifically. It's like trying to figure out like, you know, it's basically going back to the conversation we have. We know who you are, we know what you want, and we know how to get you there. That's kind of the big ticket items here. So like the ultimate way to personalize the experience to the user. It's, it's like creating Jarvis. It's like the ultimate, uh, you know, digital uh, assistant for an advisor and advisor assistant so they can be much more efficient when they do their job. Jarvis, I, if you recall, is, is from... Of course. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm now I'm going to be writing about how Pershing is going to be building an Iron Man suit and it'll, it'll be out soon. <laughs> I really want to see that. Great. Guys, thanks so much. Super interesting. I really love this kind of conversation. I'm glad we could work out the time. Uh, and I look forward to our next conversation, all the things we didn't get a chance to talk about because there was just too much. Uh, thank you so much, Raj, Michelle. Hey, it's Craig again. Hope you enjoyed this episode. I got a lot out of it. I really like talking about this kind of stuff. Uh, anything AI related uh, coming down the pike to help advisors, to help broker dealers and other firms, uh, things that we're really interested in my company and I'm also very interested in. Uh, I really like the uh, AI for operations that uh, Raj was talking about. Uh, we work with a lot of broker dealers and RIA aggregators and operations are always something that we're trying to improve help our clients improve their efficiency and, uh, and scalability of their operations. So any tools that can provide, as, as Raj was saying, a dashboard of, of trends, predictive data, uh, that, can, that can reduce the time required to get you know, menial tasks done, uh, money movements, account maintenance, uh, other types of service issues is really going to help a lot of firms. Uh, chatbots, I think, is also a huge benefit. Uh, if they're smart enough, you know, if they're stupid chatbots, not going to be very helpful. But the smart chatbots that can anticipate what your question is going to be and that can actually uh, respond in intelligent ways and direct you to the right 
area. And I know when I saw the, the chatbot at Pershing's conference last year, it was pretty smart as long as, you know, in, within the script they were showing. But if you ask for a certain uh, function, you know, you lost my uh, client, lost their credit card. It brought up the right form to request a new one and filled it out as much as it could. So that's really helpful. That's going to reduce a lot of times, a lot, a lot of the cues of, of inbound requests, whether it's uh, account opening, account termination, uh, or other uh, you know, more complicated issues of, of, of different types of accounts uh, that aren't the, the normal accounts that get opened all the time. Uh, it'll save uh, the operation team a lot of effort and a lot of training. That was, a lot of the training that is normally required to operate uh, any of the custodial systems or any of the... Uh, uh, the vendor wealth management systems, they should also be looking at this. So uh, hope you enjoyed it. And please remember to uh, like us wherever you can share this episode and feel free to send us a uh, post on Twitter at Craig Iskowitz. Any thoughts you have about uh, guests you'd like to hear on the podcast or, or just feedback. Look forward to talking to you all again next time. <music>